Hello there, Broad Appeal listeners. Brian here, wishing you a great start to 2016 on behalf of Sean and myself. We are still on our holiday break, but we're bringing you an episode that we recorded earlier in 2015. There's a bit of a different sound quality because it was done outside of the normal airtight confines of the Broad Appeal studio. Um, but hopefully that's made up for because we have our very first special guest on the show. Enjoy the episode, and I'll be back at the very end with a couple other announcements. Welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Sean. And I'm Brian. How you doing, Brian? Oh, I'm fine, Sean. And you? Super, as always. This is a very special episode, isn't it? It is. Yes, because, ladies and gentlemen, we have our first guest here on Broad Appeal. It is my pleasure to introduce playwright, cinephile, friend of the podcast, Melissa Bubnick. How are you, Melissa? I'm very well. How are you? Oh, we're great. Excellent. In a change to our usual practice, we are now going to explore a film that neither Sean nor I have seen but that Melissa has seen, and it is a film starring the incomparable Bette Midler. Uh, So, Melissa, obviously, you were the first person we thought of to be on this podcast, generally, because you just would be delightful and full of amazing opinions and comments and, and, and ideas about movies. But... When it comes to Bette Midler, I mean, you're the first person that I get out of my Rolodex. You're the only person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, have a, I have been in love with Bette for some time. A love affair, I think, over 16, 17 years. I discovered her as an early teenager and absolutely adore her and everything she's done, including... Um, a little-known disco album that... Uh, oh, you mean Thighs and Whispers? <laughs> yeah, that crashed, almost derailed her career, but bless her, I love Bette. Well, I, the song Night in Black Leather is one of my uh, favourite Bette Midler songs. <laughs> Gosh, Sean, you've been doing some extra research. <laughs> I'll tell you after the show's finished. <laughs> well, so, Melissa, before we get into talking about the specific movie we're going to be watching today, what, uh, do you remember, like, your first encounter with Bette Midler, when it was? I feel like she's always been around. I mean, a film like Beaches was sort of, you know, in, from 1986 to something that has been on free-to-air television repeated a million times. So I feel like there was never a time where I wasn't aware of Bette. But I encountered an album, uh, a, a recorded album called Divine Madness, which she recorded in 1980. Uh, one of her concerts and it was just a revelation that this was a woman who could do everything she could act she could do stand-up comedy she could sing she was a raconteur and I fell in love with the entire persona that big brassy the divine Miss M persona and after that kind of actively sought out all the things that Bet had done in movies and her in music and, and so forth. This was to the extent of going to see her live. I did see Bette live. I believe I was the youngest uh, person in the, uh, in in the arena <laughs> who went to see Bette. Um, I feel like a lot of her fan base tended to be people in their 50s and a strong gay following. Bette has always had a strong gay following ever since um, she started out in the bathhouses in New York. But... Uh, not not so popular among um, 18-year-old women from the 90s. But I was there. The first time I ever came across Bette Midler was in animated form when she appeared as herself 
On The Simpsons. On The Simpsons, yeah. I remember that. But Ben Midler, to me, first of all, I knew she sang Women Beneath My Wings because I deduced that from the episode. I thought she was some kind of conservationist, really. <laughs> her efforts at conservation are nothing to be sneezed at. Well, the first film I ever saw her in um, as a starring role was Hocus Pocus. Of course, yeah. of course. She's very proud of her work yeah, in that she role. is, should she, be. She believes it was her finest hour because of the consistency of her character. She said there is not a scene in that film where she falters. <laughs> and if you, have the, if you have the opportunity to watch that film, which has become a bit of a cult classic, um, you can attest that she Amongst is... Halloween aficionado, the um, lover, yeah. witch lovers. You can attest that she is on the entire <laughs> time. Uh, it's interesting. I haven't seen, I haven't seen Hocus Pocus. Um, I haven't actually, scandal to admit, seen Beaches. What? I know. That's crazy. But I am actually probably the only person among the three of you who can say that I sang both Wind Beneath My Wings and the song that I prefer, From a Distance, when I was in my middle school chorus. Because <laughs> being in middle school in the early 90s, like these were songs that were, you know, on the radio all the time, From a Distance seemed to, I think, come out right around the time of the first Persian Gulf War and was somehow associated <laughs> with honouring the troops. Uh, so my my way into Bette Midler was through that. I can oddly remember going to see Stella in the cinema. Uh, the, the Stella Dallas remake. Yes, but I, even being the budding cinephile that I was, I don't think I quite knew what Stella Dallas was, but I was taken by my aunt to see this movie, and I think it was probably rated PG-13. I don't think she would have taken me if it was rated R. And we left halfway through. Yeah, Bette was nominated for her first Razzie Award for her work in Stella. <laughs> in Stella. Yeah, which I think is a little unfair. It's um, it might not be her finest hour, but I don't believe we can uh, we can attribute the uh, the lack of success for that film entirely on Bette's. Well, shoulders. I mean, they got our ticket money, even if we didn't Wait. finish seeing it. We were taken out though, because of course it's about unwed mothers and uh, you know it's a kind of classic weepy but I guess my aunt hadn't really read up on the synopsis before <laughs> taking me to see it but I mean it's interesting that we talk about we talk about Bet and this kind of outsized concert personality because it is interesting that she like she plays these big larger than life roles she kind of became famous for her big touring acts but um, she also is like a really credible dramatic actress as well um, and uh, another that classic that I haven't seen is her her movie debut, I think, which is The Rose. Have you seen that, Melissa? Yeah, many, many times. She is utterly amazing in The Rose where uh, the experience is transformative. She completely throws herself into that, into that role and very much deserved her Academy Award nomination. Um, she also won the Golden Globe for that, for that role. And interestingly... Um, when Bette kind of reflects on her career, she does talk about how what she really wanted to be was a dramatic actress. And music was something that she always loved, but the idea of creating this big, brassy persona that she um, has been doing since, you know, the, the mid, mid to late 60s, that for her was a way that she could ensure that she had a career because mm -hmm. she didn't feel that she was confident enough to be a dramatic uh -huh. actress. But that was her first love. And I think it's interesting that her most successful 
pictures are those in which she does sing. But it, I mean, it is extraordinary. She is, she, I mean, her singing, the dancing, but also, I mean, there are some very hardcore scenes and I don't want to spoil it for those who haven't seen it, but she goes to some incredibly dark, intense places in that film. And it's extraordinary that it's her first, yeah, you know, major role. Um, it was, it's a bit like kind of Whoopi Goldberg being picked for The Colour Purple, which was her first film as well. Mm. You don't necessarily think of her as a dramatic actress, even though she's proven herself capable of being one. Well, and both of them, I guess, sort of cut their teeth doing live performance. I, absolutely, and I think it's interesting if you think about uh, the films that Bette is associated with, like uh, The Rose, Beaches, and For the Boys... They're all about a performer, a kind of a musical act and, and uh, you know, the trials and tribulations of that experience when you're on top, when, when the audiences love you and also when, when you're not so much on top, when you've fallen out of favour. Yeah. So, Melissa, can you tell us uh, in so many words, what is the basic story of For the Boys? So For the Boys is about a character called Dixie Leonard, uh, played by the divine Bette Midler, who um, uh, during World War II, she's a performer, a little-known performer, and somehow one of those crazy showbiz stories, she's pulled up on stage by Eddie Sparks, who's played by James Kahn, in a kind of Bob Hope uh, kind of role. He's a song and dance man, and they entertain the troops. And uh, Dixie Leonard is plucked from obscurity to join Eddie on stage. They have immediate chemistry and immediately dislike each other, Ooh. and so begins a great showbiz relationship. Over what two and a half hours? Yes. <laughs> Over almost three hours, and I believe almost fifty years. Okay, okay, can I say the only thing I know about this film is that it features nineteen nineties prosthesis. Does it? Yeah, it does. An an amazing prosthesis. Yeah, which was well. which was a big big thing in the 1990s. It is very 90s, incredibly badly done in some ways, but you don't for a moment buy the 90 something year old uh, bet or, or Jimmy Khan for that matter. Looks, <laughs> I mean, they both look ridiculous and do a bit of an old person shuffle. I'm salivating with anticipation now watching this movie. But Melissa, um, this was a real passion project for Bette Midler, wasn't it? She kind yeah. of ushered it into existence. Absolutely. So Bette had formed her own um, production company with uh, two two peers, also women, and uh, they had produced, their first picture had been Beaches, which had been a huge success. And Bette wanted, was looking for um, a vehicle that she could star in. And, and it had really, this was her passion project. This was her idea. She had in mind a three-act structure where she wanted to look at the way the American public, its perception of war changed over time. It's not a, it's not a great film, but I think there is something about Bette's passion in it that is kind of extraordinary. And it, it does a lot of things that Bette loves. I mean, she has always been inspired by... Uh, by female singers of the 40s and 50s. And, and if you look at her act from the, her very first hit of Boogie Woogie, Bugle Boy, and her inspiration, um, the Andrews sisters as a, a huge inspiration in her career, it is kind of exciting seeing her in that era that she has so much taken to heart. This is a movie that has been on my list to watch for a really long time. I think probably the 1991 Academy Awards was one of the, maybe the second one that I ever watched. 
I know she lost the Oscar to Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs, a movie I certainly couldn't have watched at the time. For the Boys I never saw, but I kind of filed it in the, a way in my mind as maybe I would like that movie. So today's the day I find out. What about you, Sean? How are you, what, what are you anticipating? You know, there's never been a Bette Midler film that I haven't liked. <laughs> really? Yeah, I, you know, as Melissa was saying, she's a raconteur, she's a stand-up comedian, she's an actress, she's a singer, she's self-deprecating. It's impossible not to like someone as talented as that, but a, ta- a really palatable talent. Well, we're going to watch the film. You guys can keep... You can watch it yourself, of course, if you like, or stay listening to hear what we think. (laughs) So, a plane without any gas. What did you do? Do? Do, uh, to keep up morale and all that. Lovely young boy, but terrified, half out of his wits, you know. Nervous, terrified. I said to him, this one's going to take a long, hard pull. along with you that boy deserves a purple heart <laughs> well it was purple all right but i don't think it was his heart yeah. i want some hugging and some squeezing and some hugging and some teasing and some stuff like that there. Okay, welcome back to part two. So we've just finished watching the film so we all kind of have a lot to say about it but first i want to ask melissa what was it like watching it now compared to those years ago were you blinded by your love of bet or could you possibly have found the odd flaw or two in this film (laughs) um the first time i saw it i was definitely aware that it is a a very flawed film but i thoroughly enjoyed elements of it and this time round, um there weren't that many surprises i think the main surprise for me was the depiction of women in this film as something that i hadn't been as conscious of previously apart from uh, Dixie Leonard, Bette's character, there aren't many women in this film that get actually many lines at all and the depiction is incredibly two-dimensional. I, that surprised me, but I did... It Actually, um, I remembered the film quite well, so it, it stays with you, I think, this picture. But Melissa, did you remember the plot so well because it was a, perhaps a tad formulaic? Yes, I believe that is a fairly accurate description. Uh, the plot is so clearly a three-act, well, arguably even a four-act structure where the 90s bookend the film and then we have three distinct acts within that, which is World War II, the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And it, the film really does telegraph what is going to happen each step along the way. In the in the 90s, there is an award ceremony. A TV executive's assistant is charged with the task of picking up legendary Dixie Leonard, played by Bette Midler, 
she refuses to go because she doesn't want to be reunited with her former colleague, Eddie Sparks. We cut back in time to the 1940s. Eddie Sparks, in the style of Bob Hope, is a song and dance man entertaining the troops in Europe. They have a they go to Korea, they have a successful TV show in the US in the 50s, they fall out and they reunite again in the in 1969 to go entertain the troops in Vietnam uh, with um, some heartbreaking consequences. They don't speak again for another 25 years until this award show in the 90s comes up. It's interesting as you're recounting the plot, that same kind of like they fall out, they get back together, they fall out, they get back together. It's this kind of like yo-yo plot mechanism that kind of virtually every scene in the movie seems to be persuading Dixie to get back with Eddie. You, you never really understand why Dixie, the, the attraction of Eddie, she always seems to be quite pissed off with him. She's always angry about something as opposed to... What pulls her towards Eddie? Uh, he seems to be charismatic for pretty much everyone else, but not for the clever Dixie Leonard who sees through his charms for was some reason. Did you notice in the film that everybody recognises uh, Eddie all the time, but nobody <laughs> ever recognises Dixie? Yeah. <laughs> Even though she's there with him all the time. And so it does make you think about really popular duos and what does each... Uh, each element bring to the act. Maybe one of the scenes that that works the best is sort of the beginning or kind of her first entree onto a big stage, right? Where he he's they're doing this World War Two thing in London, and he's he, they've cabled for her to come in because what is it? Her her uncle, played by George Siegel, yeah, is, Art is, Silver is um, Eddie's head writer, yeah, mm. and and that scene to me. That was where, at the beginning of the movie, I was kind of thinking, oh, maybe, you know, this is going to be corny, but maybe this is going to have some, some juice to it, because she, she's all fluttery and like, how, how am I going to be able to, like, to be, to be charismatic with the big superstar, Eddie Sparks? And then she comes out and she kind of finds this sort of foul-mouthed, body stage persona. Channeling which, a young Bette Midler. Yeah, <laughs> Predating Bette Midler. She basically lets the, the full bet out of the bag, so to speak, and sings and dances and does comedy. Well, we should probably focus on the fact that this is definitely a Bette Midler vehicle. Her name's above the title. She came up with a story... And she has a, a producing credit, not executive producer, mind you. So, I mean, what are the risks involved with passion projects, Brian? I mean, you're familiar with a few passion projects. I mean, <laughs> personally. <laughs> personally, like what, what, what are the risks of having, you know, all this involvement in a film apart from the financial well, I guess uh, risk part, itself? Part of it is just a lack of critical distance, which I think seems to be the big problem here. Is like, I actually think there is a really cool concept possible in this movie. It is an interesting commentary on the kind of showbiz culture and how that relates to American history. Like in the kind of Forrest Gump sense of history that it's like these two characters who like show up in all these big events throughout time. But I think the problem with this being a passion project is like even it's just the slow pace of it. Like we have to have this whole 90s frame where it's like, where's Dixie? Dixie hasn't showed up yet. And they send this kid in the, in the limo and then even when he gets to her apartment, 
it's still the title sequence, but there's these kind of long panning shots to the to the furniture of her apartment, and then ba ba, there she is in her horrendous makeup. You get, I think you get used to it though, watching it. I mean, you get you to learn it. to accept it. It's the suspension of disbelief. But it's just like it's almost as if no one. It makes you really appreciate, to be honest, the makeup in the Iron Lady. I think, mm-hmm. yeah, in Meryl Streep, mm-hmm. like. Roy Helen really deserved that uh, Oscar that he got for best makeup. Well, do you know what Meryl Streep said about the Iron Lady makeup was that when they were doing it, the only thing they did to change it was remove it. That it was take it off, take it off, take it off until they had the bare minimum. Whereas in this face, we kept saying it looked like uh, that Beth Midler had, uh, what was it? Lupus or something. <laughs> Was it lupus? <laughs> well, I mean, that's a horrible thing to say, but like, but it, so that, it just struck me as like, she looked like a character. Like an alcoholic, of, wasn't it? She, she looked like a character out of Dick Tracy, like, which was a year before. Like, she's like big boy Capri. She's like cartoonishly, like her face has just become a giant sort of clock face. It's kind of a, a circular globe full of liver spots. <laughs> it's really awful. I thought the arms were quite well done. I don't know if you're noticing those. That was at her best in this film when she was on stage, right? And I don't just mean in those World War II bits, but like when she's playing a woman who's doing a routine, whether it's singing or doing comedic shtick, or even in the kind of Vietnam scene, right, where she's um, she sings the Beatles, right? In yeah, in, in my life. Um, that's the schmaltzy bet. That's the bet of wind beneath my wings. She's she's giving us a, a person who is her most authentic self through performance. And you buy it. Yeah, you totally do. Yeah, yeah. Like she's a trooper, and she's she lives the characters' parts through those moments. It's kind of when we're waiting for those moments to come in this film that it feels like it doesn't really work. Like her relationship with her son and her relationship with her husband. I had thought that the pacing of this film was wrong in all the wrong places. Like, we have an end sequence, which is the speech, which goes on for way too long. And we have incidental characters like Eddie's wife and Dixie's husband, and even their son, who, you know, goes from child to adult and has a significant part himself, which you don't really seem to, I don't know, appreciate, because... You don't care about him enough. He hasn't been around. Well, he's he's become this. He's joined the army, hasn't he? Yeah, and he, and he he's joined the army. And we're you know we're led to believe that he has kind of followed uh, Eddie as a figure in his life and kind of disowned his mother. And uh, judging by his makeup, by by the son's makeup, we're led to assume that he's also going crazy as well. <laughs> you mentioned the pacing, but I think the relationship development is weak all round. I think that especially given that he assumes this pseudo-father figure, becomes this pseudo-father figure to Dixie's son, I think even that is kind of not entirely there. The relationship between Dixie and her son's not there. And most importantly, the relationship between Eddie and Dixie, something that uh, we were talking about, um, is it, it's never really... Under, we never really understand why they why they stick together when she doesn't seem to enjoy his company all that much in the scenes that we yeah, see. Why does in. she forgive him when, when he, you know, comes and drops his hat and she comes back to him? You know? yeah. Yeah. They sleep together. Yeah, this they is... Do. We actually had to... When we were watching this, we actually had to go back because we... Uh, 
It was we, so we, subtle. We weren't sure if we really understood what was happening here. <laughs> yeah, so they're they're in the middle of Korea in the battles. You know, there's wars raging all around them. And he says something. I think I wrote it down. He says something like, "I just don't want to be alone tonight." And then you see her waking up, and you think, "Oh, maybe they've just had a kind of tender because he's fully clothed." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she has disrobed, and then she says. Uh, she says uh, a bunch of guys got killed and we got laid and it's like whoa so they did sleep together yeah that entire romantic element in their relationship is completely dropped yeah there wasn't even a kind of a will they won't they because they do and you don't care (laughs) (laughs) no exactly and then basically essentially the next night on Christmas he basically wins over the affection of her son in that horrific I mean <laughs> this was the Bet's weakest moment, I think. You want to describe it? Sean? Yeah, I, it's 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 the it's the dramatic anguish moment where uh, finding out that her uncle, who got her the part, Art, isn't it? Art Silva. Yeah, Art Silva um, is for uh, one or two comments, which you probably, if you're not listening, will miss, is uh, considered to be uh, in in bed with the communists. <laughs> And is therefore dropped. He can, he he embellishes his moment of humiliation and, and tries to bring Eddie with him during the Christmas scene. And then he's so dignified, and we think, oh, that was, that was a, a rare moment of uh, dignity in this film. He exits the scene, and uh, Dixie is left to tear to chew the scenery, the scenery around her, <laughs> and, and literally <laughs> like. To toss James Kong yeah, into, into a, a three-layer cake. cake. Yeah, to throw things to call people drunk, you know. It's... You smug bitch. Did you put my uncle's name on the list, huh? Did you? Did you? What are you smiling at? You did? I know you did. Or you, Sam, was it you? Or you? Or you? Or you? You! Who's next, fellas? Rudolph? Ooh, he's got a red nose, too. We can't be too careful. Hey, I got a great idea. Let's form a club. Everybody who joins gets the button. I got screwed by Eddie Sparks. She's weak in the, in, in these dramatic scenes because she's given complete free reign. I, I mean, she almost reaches lunacy um, in in these moments, and I think that perhaps with the right director um, pulling Bet back, I, I think she can be very good in in, dra- in drama. Can I stand up for Bet ever so slightly? And you can both feel free to disagree with me. How did we feel about her? understated, tough, broad take on the Vietnam scene. I, that was the, the Vietnam scenes were, for me, the most significant piece of drama, staging of war and development of her as, an, as a character whose strength is through the way she performs. Yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily talking about so much the depiction of the war around her, which I think was like way over the top and like Mark Rydell trying to like ape Oliver Stone and Apocalypse Now and with, with a smaller budget yeah you know? yeah but <laughs> and, but, uh, but you you get this sense because because James Kahn's out there on the stage and he like can't control the troops because he's he's using his old shtick right that mm-hmm. that um hasn't you know he hasn't updated his, his shtick since the 40s and 50s but she she tells them to shut the fuck up I think and all this kind of stuff and then she sings you guys are the sorriest bunch of grunts I ever saw. Where the hell did you learn your manners? Don't you know you're supposed to say excuse me before you attack a lady? Show us your tits, mama! I would, Sonny, but you'd probably have a heart attack. 
All right. Shut the fuck up. It's Christmas time. I'm gonna sing a little song for you. Possibly the reason why she succeeds where Eddie Sparks doesn't is because she has her little bistro <laughs> <laughs> in Hollywood. She's kept her finger on the pulse. She's been singing jazz and singing... Smoking cools. Smoking, <laughs> smoking cools and interacting with black people. So she is, she's definitely up with the times, whereas poor Eddie Sparks is sort of living in this kind of nostalgic... 50s past um during the vietnam era she clearly has some kind of implied anti-war attitude yeah she's not happy about her son going to the war she seems slightly more with it than eddie is eddie is basically depicted as this kind of like conservative republican rah-rah american freedom but they never really go at it like you never really get a sense of like from 1969 to 1991 when, when basically she feels Eddie is responsible for her son being brutally slaughtered in the war in front of her very eyes. Yeah. What does this woman, Dixie Leonard, do with her life? Do you know what I mean? Is she Jane Fonda? Like, who is she? Yeah. You know, and I think that's part of the incoherence of this character. Can I ask a difficult question yes. to both of you? Do you think this film would have been different if an actress who was not Beth Midler had starred in it. But who? This one I'm asking you. This is an interesting thought experiment. Uh, like, think of the actresses at the time. I mean, what about... But someone who has to be able to sing. Yeah. Oh, Michelle... The, I mean, you could imagine a version young. of Michelle Fine. Yeah, you could, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually... That is, did occur to me. Youth doesn't matter. Yeah. We have yeah. amazing <laughs> makeup technology. <laughs> you know, actually, Fabulous Baker Boys is not a dissimilar kind of story. Actually, you know... I hate to say it. Meryl Streep. No, I'm not oh, going to no. say it. Sorry, I'm not going to say it. Liza. Yeah. Liza Minnelli. And in a way, maybe something like New York, New York, or even Cabaret has similar elements where it's like a woman who is kind of going through difficult ups and downs, but she lives on the stage when she comes out and delivers a number. You know mm. what I mean? I think you have to have someone in this part like who has a kind of mm, direct connection to that sort of old school type of entertainment, which Bette Midler clearly has. Streisand? Uh, no. I mean, if you think Bette Midler was self-involved. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Sean, are you she really claiming that you would like to see Meryl Streep's version of For the Boys? Um, I, to be honest, like, I think Meryl Streep could have done a good job of that. Honestly. Talk about Meryl Streep. It would have been know she studied can, up the wazoo. We know she can sing. <laughs> when you see The River Wild, you know, you'll know that she can do kind of action sequences as well. I don't think the, the weakness of this film lies completely with Beth. I, I think there is a... I think there are serious script problems. I feel Mark Rydell has to take some responsibility for his direction of this. This film, even though it, it's 1991, it feels incredibly old-fashioned. Mm -hmm. yeah. Brian mentioned the actress who beat Beth to her Academy Award, which was Jodie Foster. In Silence of the Lambs. Which is stylistically, thematically, in every way possible, 
a completely different film, which kind of started the 90s. Sounds of the Lambs began the 90s stylistically in a way that it continued up until, say, I don't know, Fight Club or American Beauty or something. Well, certainly edgier filmmaking, but I mean, it's not as if there hadn't been edgier movies. I mean, even Bet had been in edgier movies than this, right? The Rose yeah. is edgier. I think they were clearly going for this kind of glow of nostalgia, which sort yeah. of makes sense given the subject matter, but it kind of feels like a movie that's sort of preserved in amber. Like the lens is covered in Vaseline. It's like everything's a bit fuzzy. There's a lot of films around that time that look that way, you know? I, I don't know if... It has kind of a non-look, if you know what I mean. It's just everything is... Everything in the shot is in focus and you see what you're supposed to see. It's not particularly artistic either. There's... Yeah, I would agree with you. And I'd also say uh, a film that it reminds me of is A League of Their Own mm-hmm. in terms of its structure where we start and end the film in the 90s with an older woman looking back on significant events in her life and then we, we cut back to the past where the, the meat of the film actually takes place. And Saving Private Ryan does yeah. that. Um, Bridges of Madison County does that. Titanic. In- yeah, what was it about this time that we felt we needed these kind we of... We needed older people to look <laughs> back on their lives. Because it's a, it's a cheap technique that you can repeat again and again and again. Yeah. Yeah, but what does the technique achieve? It makes the movie longer. It, it does. Makes the movie it's a like, long. oh, I'm remembering more. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. This kid comes into her apartment and he fixes her old gramophone and then, the, like, literally she tells him her entire life story and they've already been emphasising that she's... Very late to get to the awards. <laughs> like you can imagine, he's like, "Wow, that's amazing! Uh, that's that's amazing, Dixie. Come on!" It's like, "Wait, I can remember more." Sips her whiskey. <laughs> then we went to Vietnam. <laughs> I think that comedic dramas or dramatic comedy, whichever one you want to say, is always a very difficult genre to do because, especially in this film, in which you have very body com- comedic moments delivered by Ben Midler, so you can't help that they're body. And then with these scenes of war, you know, this Pieta-esque moment of holding her bloodied son in her arms as he dies, the two just don't always sit together properly for me. It didn't diminish my appreciation of Bette Midler. It just made me realise that these types of films aren't always made perfectly. It was was neither fish nor fowl. Neither. (laughs) A bit foul, my Julie. Fishy. (laughs) I no, it, it certainly did not diminish my love of but if anything it reminded me of all the great things I love about her it does make me feel a little bit sad that I don't feel that she's always been given the, the material that she deserves where she can show off all her chops and do and do what she does so well and take something like probably um, her last big hit the first wives club in 1997 where she doesn't get to sing and she's being bet. She's amazing. She's hilarious. She steals every scene that she's in. I love her. There's something about me that loves her desire to make this film. You know what I'm saying? Even if it wasn't entirely successful. Um, She has such formidable talent. And where do you go, like what Brian was saying, when you have this kind of old-fashioned, almost vaudevillian kind of persona... Contemporary movies aren't catering for that. And where else can she go but live performance? And so she's just recently completed another international tour where 
she was adored by her fans and the critics praised what she was doing. Live performance works for Bert. Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino, when he finally decides, because he's done Westerns, he's done World War II, yeah. when he finally decides to do a musical, yeah. he's got to resuscitate Bette in the way that he's done for all these other stories. Like, she just needs someone who can channel that like thing that she has, but in a new form. Or like Baz Luhrmann, well, he's gone off the deep end. No, no I, think I, I think you're on something with Tarantino, yeah. you know, and he's yeah. the only person who could do it. <laughs> I think Cher, Bette Midler, well, not Burlesque. So not Streisand because she'd be too difficult to manage on Pedro Almodovar <laughs> oh yeah. my god I think Actually, he and Bette would do something kind of incredible together I think she is one of the she's so incredible you just need someone who can match her and rein her in when she needs to be reined in and let her full flight when, when she can soar ooh I'm, I'm getting I'm getting excited <laughs> visions already well Melissa, thank you so much for being our special yes, guest. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. Thank you again to Melissa Bubnik for being the wind beneath our wings in that episode. Even though it was recorded from a distance, we really think she did a fantastic service for the boys. Uh, those boys being myself and Sean. We also wanted to give a shout out to two other podcasts that are hosted on the same site that we are. One is called Good Times, Great Movies. If you enjoy us talking about movies of the 90s, you might enjoy listening to Doug and Jamie talk about films from the 80s. Uh, we recently connected with them. We heard one of their episodes. Of course, we gravitated to the female-driven ones. So we listened to their episode on Desperately Seeking Susan, which was Madonna's debut, along with Rosanna Arquette. But they, they've covered everything from the highs and the lows of the 80s. So check out Good Times, Great Movies if you want to get to another decade. And we've also been enjoying the Third Act podcast, which is three really intelligent guys talking about all the latest movies that are out. I mean, we're talking Hollywood things like Spectre and Creed, um, Oscar contenders like Spotlight and Brooklyn, more indie and art films as well. And they have really interesting analysis and conversation at the Third Act podcast. Meanwhile, at Broad Appeal, we will continue to bring you a look back at female-driven films from the 1990s. We've got Sigourney Weaver and Holly Hunter coming at you in Copycat, a serial killer thriller that I have never seen. Uh, so watch Copycat for our next episode. You can, of course, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Please leave us a rating and a review while you're there. And you can follow us on Twitter at Broad Appeal Pod. For Sean and myself, this is Brian saying see you soon. Bye.